The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Well, let's open our Bibles, if you would please, to Exodus chapter 25. Our subject, again this evening, is the singular light source of the tabernacle, which was a lampstand, or as we read in our King James Version, called a candlestick. This lampstand had seven small receptacles on the end of its branches with a, with a wick in each one, and those receptacles were filled with oil to fuel the lamp and to keep it continuously lit. Our picture that we show here next uh, shows this golden lampstand. I'm sorry that the picture cuts off the, the top light, but you can use your imagination to see that, uh, just like the other lights that shine from the three branches that come from either side. The command to make this lampstand is in verse number 31 of Exodus 25. And thou shalt make a candlestick of pure gold, of beaten work shall the candlestick be made, his shaft and his branches, his bowls, his knops, and his flowers shall be of the same. Now, following that verse, there's a, a several verses of description that give the details of how this was made. And observing the fine details of the scriptures, we see what great care was taken to make this a beautiful, expensive piece of furniture that would present more pictures of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I mentioned last time that the candlestick is probably one of the least difficult types of Christ to recognize. Uh, other types in the tabernacle are harder, and sometimes we strain to make the connections, and that's led some people to believe there's no reason to look for types, and they explain the tabernacle only in very simplistic terms. But since the Bible references light throughout the scriptures in many ways that represent God, that represent spiritual illumination and represent our sinfulness and the inability to see God because of our natural spiritual darkness, it's hard for us not to make the connections and just see in this the, the symbolisms uh, of, of God and light and what he intends for us to see about Jesus Christ. Now in 1 John chapter 1 verse 5, John said, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. We're going to spend some more time this afternoon talking about these symbolisms. And as we do, I want to show you the reason that John wrote about light in 1 John uh, chapter 1. Uh, when studying 1 John, it's always good to have your Bible open to the Gospel of John and also to the Revelation because in these three areas or these, these different books that John wrote, he, he goes over the same Christological themes. You'll, you'll find them repeated uh, in his writings. So I'd like you to turn, if you would, to the Gospel of John and hold your finger there for just a little while. Gospel of John chapter 7. And then we're going to look into chapter 8 uh, in just a moment. And while you're turning there, let me just remind you of the first part of our outline from last week. Uh, the lampstand was about lighting up, about illuminating the inside of the tabernacle so the priest could see to go about his daily duties. There are four areas of illumination that I want to show you. Now, we're still dealing, dealing with the first one, and we're going to finish it tonight, and then we'll take a look at the second, second one next week. 
Now, the first illumination that we've discussed is the illuminating gospel, the light of Christ. There wasn't any outside light that shone into the tabernacle. The tabernacle has no windows. There is a door for access, uh, but that door is a heavy curtain that doesn't allow any light to enter. And so the candlestick, that is the singular source of light that showed the beauty of the inside of the tabernacle. And likewise, this, uh, this is a picture of, of Christ and the gospel because the gospel is the only illumination of Jesus Christ. The only way we can see him and learn him is through the gospel. The only way that we can understand him is through the belief of the gospel. I realize there are people sometimes who come into our services and they hear our preaching and they have no idea what we're talking about. They can't make the connections about how these things all fit together. And I would say you'll never make the connections until first you see Jesus Christ. You have to get that, that done first. And the Holy Spirit helps you to see Christ. He opens up blinded eyes to the majesty and glory of Christ our Savior. So we can't know Christ without this good news of the gospel. And it's good news because it reveals him. And he is the only hope that we have for a sin-ravaged soul. Now, we've just begun to look at these truths in the last message. And I do want to continue that discussion. Uh, In the gospel, we, we realize the importance of the historical fact that there was a person named Jesus. And we understand that he died on the cross. But what we can't do is we can't just look at that as an historical fact because this fact, the gospel, is a fact that is life-changing. It does something to us. Understanding what Christ did through the illumination of the gospel changes people from the sinners that they are into saints who are in fellowship with God. Now, in verse number 31, the text says that the candlestick was to be made of pure gold, and it was to be beaten and shaped out of pure gold. And we talked about how that beating is a symbol, that it is a type of the gospel. And what did that mean, that that Moses said, you've got to beat this thing out? God said, uh, gave the instructions to Moses, and then Moses passed it on and said, this has got to be a beaten gold. What did he mean? Well, the beaten gold represents the suffering of Christ. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15 that the gospel is how that Christ died for our sins, was buried, and then arose from the grave. Christ died for our sins, and the manner of his death was suffering. He was beaten. He was nailed to a cross. Beaten can be translated as hammered, and surely that brings to mind the hammering of the nails that went into the hands and the feet of the Savior. And his death was an agonizing death. And that death was verified as the expiration of his life by the shedding of his blood. I mean, that is the purpose of shedding the blood, to show that life is gone. And so there was no question that Christ died on the cross. His life was was gone. He was truly dead when taken down and then put into the tomb. So the illuminating gospel begins with the death, and the beating of the gold typifies the agonizing death of our Savior. Well, that's as far as we got in the last message. And now I want to go on to show you the second illumination of the gospel, which which is this truth. It's the truth of the spiritual condition of all people. What is that truth? Well, the truth is that all people walk in darkness. Everyone needs the gospel, the light of the gospel, because all of us walks in spiritual darkness. 
Now, none of us is, is naturally apprised of the truth. None of us can see God because our minds are blinded by the dark blackness of our sin. We can't see through that blackness because there isn't a light that penetrates the darkened mind except that God should shine into it with the light of the gospel. Now then, if you look at the seventh chapter of John's gospel, I want to show you how the light of the lampstand figured into the life of Christ and how he showed the Old Testament lampstand was a type that referred to him who is the antitype. Now just briefly looking at John chapter 7, I want to establish the context of what takes place in John 8. So in verses 1 through 3, after these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not, all, for he would not walk in Jewry, because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brethren therefore said unto him, Depart hence and go into Judea, that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. Now in the next verses, Jesus sent his disciples to Jerusalem to attend the feast of the tabernacles. I'll explain what that is in just a moment. But at this particular time, Jesus didn't go with him. He didn't follow immediately. And in verse number 9, it says that he, he stayed in Galilee. And then in verse number 10, he made his way to the feast in Judea, but he went secretly. Then going down to verse number 14, he arrived, and it was in the middle of the feast, and he went into the temple to teach. Now, of course, Jesus was the master teacher. He knew the Jewish religion backwards and forwards. He was the lawgiver. He was the inspiration of the Old Testament scriptures. And so he, he gave the scriptures and they spoke of him and Jesus taught the scriptures in that light. Now the Jews though, they were, they were well versed in all the formalities of the law, but they didn't understand how Old Testament types like the candlestick related to the Messiah. So Jesus took the opportunity of the Feast of the Tabernacles to show that he was the antitype of this Old Testament symbol. Now, let's explain for just a minute the Feast of the Tabernacles. Now, when you, when you think tabernacle, the thing that you probably think of is what we've been showing you, the, the place where the priests work and all of that, where the candlestick and all these other items were located. But the tabernacle here doesn't refer to that, but rather refers to tents. It refers to tents that Israel lived in as they went through the wilderness on the way to the promised land. So the people lived in tents. They picked up their tents in the wilderness and they moved from place to place. And this took place, of course, right after they left Egypt. So during this Feast of Tabernacles, the people would set up tents all over the city. Uh, sometimes you'll, you'll read in the scripture, those are called booths. And in these tents, they would go in to eat their meals. And what they did was to actually act out what Israel did in the wilderness wanderings. This was an eight-day feast of celebration. It combined also Passover. And there was singing and eating. And uh, maybe to us, it would be like an annual church picnic, only a week-long church picnic. Then also at this feast, there was a lighting ceremony. And that was the lighting of the candlestick or lighting of the lampstand or, or literally the lighting of the menorah. In the temple court where Jesus was teaching, there were giant menorahs that were set up and these would be lit and then kept burning through the entire length of this eight-day feast. There weren't any street lights like we have today to light up the temple area. 
And so these giant menorahs kept uh, the temple lighted so that the feast could continue into the nighttime hours. And so this was the only time during the year that you could go to the temple at night and you would be able to make your way around and see where you were. Now in chapter 8, most Bible scholars believe that in the nighttime hours, Jesus walked directly in front of these huge menorahs as they lit up that entire area. And then with a loud voice, drawing attention to himself so that everyone could hear, he spoke, verse number 12. Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. In other words, these menorahs, these lampstands that lit up the temple of God were a symbol that Jesus Christ is the light by which all those that are in spiritual darkness can see. Without these lamps, no one could see in the temple area. But when they were lit, that light shone and the pitch black darkness around the tabernacle was dispelled. Or around the temple area, rather, was dispelled. Jesus used this light to refer to the darkness that the mind is in, uh, that people can't see God. The mind is blinded by the darkness of sin. And Jesus came into this world to be the light that, that shines in that darkness and lights it up so that we see what sin is and we see who he is. Uh, if you went into the temple area and you didn't have the light of those lampstands, you couldn't see. So what's the point of being there if you can't see? So as it's the same thing in the, in the tabernacle. The candlestick is lit up in the tabernacle so the priest can see to go about his duties. I mean, there's no point of him being on the inside if all that he does is stumble around. But then when those lamps are lit, what it showed was the beauty of Jesus Christ exposed in all of its splendor. And this is what the gospel does to the sin-darkened heart. It lights up Jesus Christ. It shows the wonders of Christ. And we would remain in darkness unless that light should shine. Natural depravity keeps, uh, keeps uh, Christ from being seen. And folks, that's the condition that the devil labors to keep us in. He tries to keep people blinded to the gospel because the gospel is the only way Christ can be seen. In 2 Corinthians 4, the apostle wrote, But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ should shine in unto them, who is the uh, uh, glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine in unto them. Now, the devil is more powerful than all of us in this room put together, and there is no way by ourselves that we can find our way out of this spiritual darkness. None of us can do it by choosing to see because our will is also in that depravity of deepest darkness. If we could believe simply by human will, then that would refute what Paul says in 2 Corinthians and what Jesus said at the lighting of the menorahs. Nobody sees Nobody sees and understands Christ until God lights them up, until he overcomes the natural blindness and the supernatural effects that Satan uses to keep us blind. And no person will ever overcome either Satan or that natural depravity simply by an act of the will. Now, let me mention three effects of the gospel light that it, has to sh that it does as it shines to eliminate darkness. The first is that light illuminates. Now, I don't really need to spend much time here because illumination is our first point but we all know we turn lights on so we can see at night 
you turn the lights on in your house to negotiate your way through the house so that you don't fall. Uh, you remember last year that my wife had some serious falls, and so what I had to do is to eliminate all the hazards of her getting up in the, in the late hours of the night. So I installed some motion detector lights in our bedroom and bathroom, and as soon as she gets up from the bed and her feet hit the floor, there's a light that comes on next to the bed. And by that light, she heads towards, uh, towards the bathroom. And then there's another light that comes on so she can see to go in there. And then she walks a little bit further and a third light comes on and that directs her way into the area where the toilet is. And then if she decides to leave the bedroom and she steps into the hall, there's a light that comes on on the bookcase down next to the floor and she's able to see where she's going. So I put all these lights up so that she doesn't run into anything and stumble in the night. And so the light lightens the hazards that are in the way so she doesn't fall and hurt herself. And this is the same thing that we see in the gospel. Until the light shines in, there's none of us that knows the hazards of sin that are in the dark. We don't know the snares. We don't know the traps that Satan sets for us. All these things that are dangerous to our soul. Nobody can negotiate the wiles of the devil while they're in darkness. So it takes the light to shine to see what needs to be avoided. And that light illuminates the understanding, our understanding of sin so that sin appears to be sin. I want you to listen to this somewhat confusing statement made by Paul in Romans 7. We were kind of around this scripture this morning in the form class. But in Romans seven thirteen, Paul wrote, Was then that which is good made death unto me? He's speaking of the law. God forbid, but sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. Now, Paul's talking about God's law. He says the knowledge of the law killed him. Now, all along in his life, he thought that he could be saved by the law, but the commandments, God's commandments, must be seen in the light of the gospel. They have to be seen in the light so that none thinks that they can be justified by any good thing that they do. And so when Paul realized this, he saw that the commandments didn't help him, but the commandments exposed his sin and that he was a worse sinner than he ever imagined himself to be. And that's the second effect of the light. The light illuminates the mind to sin and it exposes who and what we are. So number two, light exposes. When the light comes on, it exposes the hidden things that are in the darkness. Now, that exposure can be both good and bad. depends on what's done after what you see is exposed. Jesus said in John 3, And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world. And men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. Now, when Jesus said, I am the light of the world, the Jews were angry. They hated that. When he said, believe on me and you won't walk in darkness, what did that imply? Well, it not only implied, but Jesus looked them straight into the eye and he directly stated that these erudite Jewish leaders were living in sin. You go on reading in the 8th chapter and you see in verse number 24, I said therefore unto you that ye shall die in your sins. For if ye believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. So he said, you're sinners. 
Because you don't believe that I'm not of this world and that I came from the Father, you'll die in your sins. And that just made the Jewish leaders hate him all the more. Because if they came to the light as he, as he showed them light, their evil deeds would be exposed. If, if he's right, then they're wrong. If he's right, then their status was in danger. If Jesus was right, then every one of them must step down and lose their religious prestige and become as he was. That is to be a servant of men. I remember how he exposed them in the beginning of chapter 8. That's the story of the adulterous woman. They wanted to put Jesus into a catch-22 situation where he couldn't get out of it without crossing himself up. But Jesus knew too much about them. He was too wise to fall into their trap. And so they wanted to see if he would condemn the woman, but instead he caught them and he condemned them. And he said, let the one of you that is without sin cast the first stone. And none of them did, because they knew none of them were perfect. So Jesus exposed them and caught them in their sins, and they hated him for it. So the light can do that. It can be bad for a person who wants to live in sin. The stubborn sinner hates the light. He won't come to it because it convicts him. It reproves him of his evil deeds. And then you know this. When are the worst crimes committed? They happen at night. People commit crimes at night. They want the cover of darkness so they're not seen. So nobody wants to be caught. They sneak around in the night. I I thought about this and I thought, well, when do cockroaches come out? They come out at night. And as soon as you flip on the light, you catch a cockroach scurrying to get back into the dark. I've always been kind of thankful living in this part of California for this reason. Um, I guess you, there's cockroaches everywhere, uh, but I've never seen a cockroach in our house. In Kentucky, in the hot, humid climate there, it's a breeding ground for cockroaches, and so you're fighting those crazy things all the time. Uh, when my wife and I were first married, we moved into a duplex. The people that lived next door to us brought cockroaches with them. And they spread over to our side of the house, and it was a nightmare trying to get rid of these cockroaches. Then I remember one day that I was visiting some people in a poor area of town, and I sat down on the couch to talk with them, and it was very dark in in that room. And as I talked with them, I was just kind of looking behind them at the wall behind them, behind their their couch, and this wall was moving. And uh, I couldn't see it very clearly because it was dark, So I got up and I walked over to get a closer look. And on that wall behind these people, they were literally, I mean, I'm not exaggerating at all. There were thousands of cockroaches that were climbing up and down the wall. And it looked like just a wave of these cockroaches going up and down. Now, it was good for these people that that was all happening in the dark. Because if I'd seen that in the light, they never would have heard the gospel of Christ. Because I (laughs) I wouldn't have been there. But this is what the light does. It, It exposes the filth. The gospel exposes the filth in your life. And I just have to ask, when you see the filth, do you want to live with the cockroaches anymore? Well, I hope not. Now, that, though, is when the will of man kicks in. When you you compare that to salvation, it's always afterwards. It's when the heart is illuminated and sin is exposed and when the consequences of sin are shown, that's when a person understands and then wants to come to Christ. And he won't do it any sooner than the arrival of the light because he can't see the danger in the dark. Now, it also reminds me of another example. Uh, Some are hardened, so they refuse to come to the light. They just will not come. 
They're brazened with their sin. They celebrate sin. You notice that around here? They have parades about sin. Go to San Francisco or here in Santa Rosa. They have parades about sin. And so instead of a feast of light, they're feasting in the darkness. And yes, I will say it, they're cockroaches. They come out in the dark and feast on sin. Now, this fellow that was with me on that day that I visited the cockroach house, he, he said, uh, those cockroaches were so brave that when you flipped on the light, they just came out to see what was going on. I mean, they, they weren't afraid of being stepped on. And that's the way a lot of people are in their sin. They are so brazen that they mock God. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Well, one day they will stand in the light. And they'll stand in God's courtroom, and then all of their evil deeds will be exposed. Better to come to the light now than to be exposed to the light then. So that's what the brilliant light of Christ does. It exposes all areas of our life. It opens it up for examination. Now, that's the fellow then like the cockroach who scurries away to get back into the dark. When the light comes on, he won't come to the light. But thank God there is a different reaction to light. When God issues the effectual call of the gospel, the light then has a different effect. Number three is that light attracts. Now, there's an interesting phenomenon that I was reading about a few months ago. I was uh, reading about accidents that happen at night on the freeway. When a car pulls over to the side of the road, it happens too often that drivers behind that car will see those lights and their natural impulse is to stay behind the lights, to follow the lights. And so they're drawn to that. And what they do is they just veer off the road to follow the lights and they run right into the back of the car. That's a bad effect of light attraction. But a better effect of life attraction would be this, light attraction. That is, if you're wandering in the darkness at night and you see a light, then you know there's hope. That there, there's something there. That, that means there's civilization there and so you head for that light to be to get out of the darkness and keep from being lost that light is an indication of help it's like a person on a ship at night and that ship is lost he sees a light on the shore and he's attracted to that light and he gains great hope because the light leads him home there's an old song that's written about that you're familiar let the lower lights be burning, send a gleam across the wave, some poor fading, struggling seaman, you may rescue, you may save. What's that song about? Well, it's about the gospel. It's about shining the light of the gospel. And when the Holy Spirit is there to call, that leads the weary sinner to the shores of salvation. So think of this, the lost have no hope. Unless we shine the light of the gospel and give that gospel to them. Light attracts. And then interestingly, Jesus said this about himself in John 12. He said, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. What was he talking about? He was talking about his death. And the gospel is about his death. And then he went on to say, yet a little while is the light with you. Walk while you have the light. Lest darkness come upon you. For he that walketh in darkness knoweth not whither he goeth. While ye have light, believe in the light, that ye may be the children of the light. Christ said, if he is lifted, if the gospel of his death, burial, and resurrection is preached, he said, then I will draw people to me. And that's the very reason that Christ must always be the focus of our preaching. 
It's always the illumination of the cross and the suffering and the death of our Savior that we preach. So, though every sermon we preach is not in itself a gospel sermon, not every sermon I preach is about salvation, yet every message that I preach, I hope there is the glorious light of Christ in it in some way or another. And this is the reason that we preach the tabernacle. It's because of the light of Christ. The light of the gospel attracts the lost to the hope of salvation. Then fourthly, light guides. The Feast of the Tabernacles also remembered how God guided the children of Israel. They lived in tents. And when they picked up their tents to move, if that was a nighttime move, they had a, they had a, a, a pillar of fire at night that lit the area up and guided them and protected them. And this is another characteristic of light. It guides. The psalmist wrote, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. You realize how important it is to follow the right path, to see the right light? The gospel is the light that guides you on the right path. In Galatians, Paul said, anyone that preaches a false gospel should be accursed. And that's because a false gospel condemns. That is a wrong light to follow. I remember a few years ago when we lived in Kentucky, there, was, there were two serious incidents of pilots that were flying their planes at night and they followed the wrong lights. One of these was when a pilot of a passenger plane saw the lights of the wrong airport. He was supposed to land in Lexington, but instead he landed in Frankfurt, that's about 30 miles away. So he saw the lights of that airport and he landed there and that was a game changer for his career. If his plane had been larger, he wouldn't have been able to land at that airport because the runways aren't long enough to accommodate large passenger jets. But an example, another example of what can happen is what happened in this second incident. There was a pilot that was leaving the airport in Lexington, and he lined up with the lights on the wrong runway. And so he put this huge passenger jet, not paying attention to what he was doing, I suppose, and he took off on one of the short runways that service light aircraft. So he got up a speed of about 200 miles an hour and ran out of runway. And before he could get lift, right in front of him were nothing but trees. And so he plowed that airplane into a forest of trees and everybody on the plane was killed. That's the danger of following the wrong light. And this is what Satan does when he distorts the gospel of Christ. He, he tries to get you to follow the wrong light. He disguises himself as an angel of light. He tries to imitate God and God's character is light. So that's why Satan tries to appear as light. He imitates and destroys. And it's the same with a false gospel. That's the way it works. We preach Christ in this church and we lift Christ. We talk about the beauty of his perfections. We preach Christ in the New Testament and then we go to the Old Testament and we preach Christ even more. We preach him through these types and figures of tabernacle worship. Oh, but you can go down the street just a few blocks here on Country Club Drive and there's a Mormon church right down here. They call themselves the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints. I don't know if you know this, but they don't want to be called Mormons any longer. They've decided not to use that name. They don't want to be called the LDS Church any longer. They want to be called the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So they want to get the name of Jesus Christ in there. And all that is is Satan distorting the true gospel of Christ. It's a false gospel that if people follow it, they're led into hell. 
But the Mormons are, have grown exponentially. They do Satan's work across the world, perverting the gospel of Christ and using Christ's name to do it. And I'm telling you, you follow the wrong light, you run out of runway. Destruction is at the end of the runway. It's the broad load road that leads to destruction. Well, Jesus had more to say about the right light. Or John, rather, had more to say. In 1 John 1, verse 7, he said, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanseth us from all sin. You must walk in the light to be cleansed from sin. Well, let me conclude this afternoon's message by reading from Psalm 32. Here in the 8th verse, I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. Guiding with the eye. That's another allusion to light. It speaks about the eyes, and the eyes see light. I mean, the eyes are only useful when there is light. I suppose many of you have probably been into a cave somewhere where they show you a cave cricket. The crickets never go out of the cave. They always stay in the dark, and they don't have any eyes. They don't need eyes because there isn't any light. Well, as David, the psalmist here, spoke of truth, he speaks of the enlightenment of understanding. He said the Lord would guide him with his eye. And in verse number 9, uh, he said, Not as the horse or a mule that has no understanding and with bit and bridle he has to be kept from biting the rider. Rather, he said this is a different understanding. This is not a force understanding. This is understanding is compared to the light of the eye. What does it mean to be guided by the eye? Well, little children and husbands know what that means. When our children were little, I could give them the look, and they knew what it meant. That look in the eye said, no, you better think twice about what you're going to do next. You know, I've seen Jason give his kids the look, and it changes what they're doing. And then I've seen Sheila give him the look, and it changes what he's doing. <laughs> So you know what it means to be guided by the eye. But if you take that same look and you give it to a stranger, you'll probably get punched in the eye. Because people need to understand what that look means. You got, they have to understand what you're doing. So if someone's going to guide you with your eye, you have, to have a, you have to have a relationship with them so they understand what you mean. And this is the way it is with Christ. You must know Christ intimately and personally for God to guide you with his eye. So this is what John says, or Jesus says in, in the John 8 text. I want to illuminate your life. I want to attract you. I want to expose those things in your life that need to change. I want to guide you in the way that you should go. I want you to walk in the light as I am in the light. And that's the wonderful message that comes out of the Feast of the Tabernacles and the lighting of the menorahs. Jesus knew types and figures, and he knew how to take them into the Old Testament and he goes right to the candelabra in the tabernacle. Now, you can see the beauty of the tabernacle on the inside because the lampstand burns. You see the beauty of Christ only when the light shines into your heart. Your darkness, he is light. And so he says, come to the light. There you see the glory of Christ. And he lights your way into the majestic beauty of him and into the beauty of eternal light. In the glories of heaven. Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word.
What a wonderful picture that we have. The light of the gospel of Jesus Christ that illuminates the sin-darkened soul. It's the only way that we'll ever be able to see who you are and understand who we are. Lord, I pray that we would be a people that always shine the light. And may this, this church be a lighthouse where people that are dying and lost in sin can hear the gospel of Jesus Christ preached. We don't want to do anything but preach Christ. As Paul said, I must preach Christ. And that's our job here. Bless us, Lord. Bless our people. We thank you for the time in your word tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.